You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Jonathan Rausch. Jonathan is a senior fellow in the Governance Studies Studies Program of the Brookings Institution and the author of six books, including the 1993 book, Kindly Inquisitors, The New Attacks on Free Thought, uh, which I have read. And his latest book is The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. Welcome, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Iona. Maybe let's let's start with where the book starts, um, which is you begin by discussing or by by positing the idea that knowledge is a social phenomenon. Um, you say that science is not a process; science is a social network. But not only science, but liberal liberal science, by which you mean the general knowledge generating um, bodies in our society or the knowledge generating mechanisms are social mechanisms. And um, what let's let's begin there. Can you talk about why you define knowledge as a social phenomenon? Humans are pretty bad actually at understanding reality except for things in their immediate ambit. You know, we're pretty good about, where can we find water? Where is the next tribe camped? Is is that a bird or a tiger in the forest? But on bigger questions, you know, the abstract questions, um, we're we're quite bad. Humans are not programmed to be truth seekers, particularly. We're pro- programmed to be consensus seekers. We want to be strong with our groups and believe the things that they believe. And so we'll actually work very hard to conform our beliefs to the people around us. And we're full of biases that that help us to do that. Um, biases like confirmation bias is probably the biggest. We're much more receptive to uh, inputs that confirm what we already believe that help strengthen our personal identities and that s- strengthen our solidarity with our tribe. And then you also have conformity bias, which builds on that. And that's, we look around at what others believe. We're kind of walking antennae for others' belief. And then we try to tune ourselves in with that. And the result of that is it's extremely easy for humans to go down these epistemic rabbit holes where we're in bubbles with people who agree with us all the time. We get more and more detached from reality because we're not testing our beliefs. We believe all kinds of crazy stuff. The next tribe believes something different. How do we settle that? We go to war. Or one group just dominates the other group. Or you have a dictator or a prince who announces what will be true, or priests, doctrines that you're not allowed to stray from. That's how humans have done it through most of history. The revolutionary change is during the Enlightenment period and ever since, this idea comes along of let's outsource deciding what's true and false. Let's outsource objective reality, knowledge, to a social network of people who are who are going to try at least to be disinterested checkers of each other. You know, I say something and then Iono looks at it and checks. And then someone who doesn't know either of us checks that. And we have to persuade each other across this vast network to make knowledge. And that becomes science, not just in the narrow sense of people in laboratories doing experiments, but also everything from history and literature to journalism, which is basically doing the same thing, uh, creating this, this network to establish and check facts, even law and government are in this business of making knowledge across this vast network. And and that network runs according to some rules, which I call the constitution of knowledge, because like the US constitution, they're about forcing social negotiation and saying, look, if you want to make a law, you have to go through this process of checking and balancing. And if you want to make knowledge, you have to go through this process of persuading and checking. So this is the greatest institution and the greatest invention in human history. It's species transforming, literally. It just fantastically increases our access to knowledge and freedom and peace. 
but it's also very controversial. And that's the core of my book. What are those controversies and how do we meet them today? Mm. One of the first things that surprised me in the book, um, when you were describing the knowledge as a social phenomenon, you talk about what can go wrong if we don't have um, some larger overarching um, institutional structures and incentives in place, some kind of shared body to which everybody is incentivized to appeal, um, that this can result in an epistemic tribalism and it can lead to a creed war, uh, a war between people of different beliefs. And the surprising thing for me is that you write that it's not that first people have certain beliefs and then because their beliefs clash, they end up in conflict with each other. But the formation of the tribes comes first. And then you say, once tribal li lines have been formed, there will be no shortage of ideologies for identity and conflicts to be about. And you put the about also in inverted commas. Um, it's almost as if the the important thing is the formation of the tribe that comes first. And then we look for a belief to justify um, to justify the kind of in-group solidarity and the out-group competition. Yeah, that's is that, a, an, is that an accurate summary? That's exactly of that? right. Well, there's one bit in there which which I would caution against, which is the notion that we all have to appeal to a single common authority. Mm -hmm. And in fact, mm -hmm. that's the opposite of the case because when we all appeal to a single common authority, we're part of a religious cult, probably. And yeah. that's that's the opposite yeah. of liberal science. What we do, however, is we all have to go out on the same network and do a lot of the same kinds of things in consultation and competition with each other. It's that big network out there that we're all part of and the constitution of knowledge, which sets the rules. I call that network the reality-based community. And and that's that's what I'm part of. And it's it's not united in any particular belief or doctrine. It's united in a way that we interact with each other over this network. But yes, the rest of your point is is exactly right. The great social psychologist Jonathan Haidt talks about reason as a kind of press secretary. It's we imagine that we sit down, we reason through a problem, we follow where reason leads, we consult evidence, and we come out with the right answer. Well, that's not true at all. For the most part, we look at our affiliations to our groups. We look at our identities. Am I a Republican? Am I a Democrat, left winger, right winger, Christian, Jew, atheist, what have you? And then reason kind of acts as a press secretary. We put it to work to justify what it is that we believe, and it's good at that. We send it out in the public, and we say, here's why we believe this, and we dress it up. But reason evolves, apparently, as a way to persuade other people so that they will become our allies in our social group. Of course, it turns out that in evolution, once you evolve something for one purpose, you can use it for another. And it also turns out reason is a good way to find out truth. It's just not a good way if we do it out on our own individually. You know, if you go out on the internet and start reasoning your way through vaccines, you're very likely to become an anti-vaxxer because that's what you'll encounter and it might make sense to you. So that's why we reason publicly through this fantastic network, the reality-based community, which is just its great strength is not that it doesn't make mistakes. It's that it makes mistakes so quickly. We, we all put ideas out there uh, and they get compared and vetted very quickly. Most of them are just bosh. Most of them are wrong, but a few are right. And it's very good at finding those quickly and finding the errors and the rest. And that's how we get knowledge. And that's how we get vaccines for coronavirus in under a year. Yeah. I'm sorry. I mean, I kind of misspoke a bit when I talked about authority. I didn't mean it in the sense of um, a, a person or organization making pronouncements. I meant it in the sense of we trust in the in the um, in the error checking, bias correcting uh, characteristics of the system, which is that when when we speak publicly, then we correct each other's biases and errors because we don't see our own, but we see each other's. Yes, that's exactly right. We don't see our own biases; we do see each other's. So this system forces us to contend with other people's biases. And other institutions' biases, a, a, a big point of the book, and something that I think that, that the reason I wrote this book, I wrote a book kind, called Kindly Inquisitors, The New Attacks on Free Thought almost 20 years ago. 
And it propounded this model, but it missed something that was just crucial, which is that this is not a system of individuals talking to each other, because that's impossible on a global scale. It's even possible on a small scale. We have very small circles of friends, and they'll tend to confirm what we already believe. It's institutions talking to each other. It's like um, places like newsrooms and universities and practices like peer review and fact-checking and statistical agencies and conferences um, and educational structures uh, and magazines like ARIO, just for example. These are all nodes on the network where people come together to compare ideas. They, they filter them. They say, is this a good idea, a bad idea? They take the good ideas. They push them out through the network to other nodes in the network. If they're bad ideas, they reject them and they tend to die out pretty quickly. But, but it's those nodes, those are the keys to making the network work. And what went wrong with social media to get a bit ahead of ourselves is it ignored the nodes. It just said, well, let's just hook everyone up to everyone. And that could not ever work. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm just going back slightly. You talk in a, in a more fundamental way about how all knowledge is public knowledge. Um, I mean, all all kind of, all truth-seeking has to be public. One man's experience is nothing if it stands alone. I'm reading from the book. If he sees what others cannot, we call it hallucination. It is not my experience, but our experience that has to be thought of. And this us has indefinite possibilities. Consider a shaggy-haired man furiously scribbling equations and theories in his room in Bern, Switzerland. Perhaps he is Albert Einstein, discovering new truths which will rearrange the whole universe. Or perhaps he is a madman writing gibberish. Either way, he thinks he is a genius doing great science. So, I mean, the only way that we can tell the genius from the madness is once it's out in the world to be checked against by other people. Yes, yes, exactly right. I should add that the first half of of what you read is not by me. It's by my intellectual hero, Charles Sanders Peirce, a oh, the greatest yes, American philosopher uh, of, of knowledge who was, wrote that 150 years ago and was so far ahead of his time in understanding what's now called network epistemology, the idea that truth arises from interactions across a social network, that um, he went completely, almost completely ignored in his own day. But yeah, that's that's the great insight uh, that philosophers, epistemologists have come to in recent years, as well as sociologists of science and, and others. Science is not something you do. It's not something that I do. It's something we do. It's a gigantic social network. It's the greatest social network of all time. It just dwarfs Facebook. It makes all other social networks look small and unambitious by comparison because it increases knowledge at an exponential rate. You say in a quite fundamental level that we all... Um, I think, as you put it, outsource our interpretations of reality and our perceptions of reality to our social groups. So you describe that as an almost inevitable phenomenon. And therefore, what the kind of constitution of knowledge does, or one thing it does, if I'm understanding right, is um, broaden the, that group as as much as possible so the smaller the group to which we're outsourcing our perception of reality, um, the, the more likely we are to be wrong. Yes, exactly right. Um, it's such a pleasure to talk to someone who's, who's so interested in these ideas and, and so comprehending of them. So thank you for that. They're, My they're, pleasure. So we all outsource our reality to our social group. You know, We rely on other people that we trust to help us establish what's true and false. But there's a big difference between a cultic group, a small group of people who all believe the same thing and don't allow each other to, to differ, or maybe they have a cult leader or a holy text. So that's one way of doing it. But if you outsource to this gigantic global fact-checking network, you get two things that, that no other kind of outsourcing provides. One is it's impersonal. The rule in the reality-based community is whatever I do to check you, should also be something you could do to check me or a third party would do. And no matter who performs this checking, this experiment, this test, this criticism, it should come out the same way in principle. So it shouldn't matter who in particular you are. And that allows you to have millions 
of people working on problems at the same time and still talking about the same universe, which is so important because that's what social media undermines, because we all have to be transparent to each other. And the second thing you get on this network that you don't get anywhere else is diversity. The constitution of knowledge only works because there are plenty of different viewpoints to test every possible viewpoint. You've just absolutely got to have lots of different views. The key to science is not that it's unbiased. Uh, scientists are very biased. All, all human beings are. It's that it pits all the biases against other biases. It uses them as an engine, just as in politics. It uses conflict between groups to become a spur to compromise, and that's how you develop social consensus. Same sort of idea. I liked the way in the book you talked about, um, so I think actually this idea came from James Madison, that compromise is not just a kind of watering down of your initial idea to to pander to voters or or to kind of manage to find common ground with um, political adversaries, but it's also an an engine of create creativity because by forcing you to continually modify your ideas to try to reach consensus with others, it continually forces you to re-examine them. You don't have any choice because um, you're in this process of negotiation to allow your ideas to be either accepted by the knowledge community or to be accepted in um, as political policy. You will have to keep rethinking and modifying um, until you find the idea that that the others will accept that will resonate. Yes, that's so important. Here in the U.S., in recent decades, compromise has received a bad name because people associate it with just splitting the difference, giving up on your principles, and walking away with some kind of deal that's unfair to everyone. But that's completely wrong. What what Madison and the framers of the Constitution realized is that di- is the compromise is is the great engine of uh, social innovation. Because it forces people to work these things out and they have to get creative to do that. So, you know, you think about two children and one wants to play cards and the other wants to play checkers and they can't decide. So what do they do? Well, maybe they decide to play first one game and then the other, or maybe they decide actually it would be more interesting to ride their bikes, or maybe they form some new kind of hybrid game that they make between cards and checkers. There are just all kinds of things they do, but the the need to find some kind of agreement with each other forces them to get creative, to work around log jams, to consider new ideas. That's true in politics. That's the genius of the U.S. Constitution. It, it forces this social negotiation, and that constantly brings new ideas and players into the system and makes sure that no one group can just dominate all the others. But it's also the key to the reality-based community, which also forces social negotiation, but the parallel concept isn't compromise. You know, you and I don't sit down and negotiate over biology. It's persuasion. You and I and hundreds, thousands, millions of others have to persuade each other of something before it gets into the textbooks. But that forces us to consider many points of view and try to come up with some synthesis that's workable. It's always dynamic. It's always changing because there's always new inputs and new people coming along. So it's fantastically dynamic, but it's this giant process of social negotiation and social persuasion on an epic scale. Yeah, absolutely. Another point you made that I think is often um, overlooked, a distinction that is often overlooked, is between fallibilism, a concept which uh, comes from your your hero, Peirce, Charles Sanders Peirce, um, which is the idea that the truth is out there, but it's it's difficult to um, it's difficult to get to the truth, and it's impossible to prove something is right. But what you can do is have a working hypothesis and then try to disprove it. So things can be adjudicated and disproven. And the difference between that and a kind of more overarching skepticism, um, which characterizes on the one hand, the kind of postmodernist idea that everybody has their own truth, um, that there's really no such thing as a kind of one stable truth out there, and it depends on your viewpoint, etc. And also the the sort of postmodern conservative thing. Um, I'm borrowing that term from Matt McManus. I don't know if you know his his work on this. 
he links he links kind of conservative thought with postmodern thought, and he says that um, you know someone like Trump is in a sense a postmodernist because he truth is kind of whatever he wants it to be, and that's how he encourages his encouraged his supporters his base to think, and I think that that is a that um, distinction between fallibilism and skepticism is a really important one. I don't know if I put it correctly, so maybe you'd like to enlarge on that. You you put it very well. Fallibilism is this notion that we find truth by seeking error. And it's very counterintuitive, but extremely powerful. So philosophers established millennia ago in the age of the Greeks that we can't be 100% certain of anything so skeptics came along and said, well, if we can't have certainty, then we can't have knowledge. So everything's up for grabs. And then you have lots of derivatives of that that come down to us today. And, and one of those is certain forms of, of postmodernism that say, well, since you can't have real truth or real knowledge about anything, it's all just a power game and it's colonialism in which minorities are oppressed. And, and then you've got conservative versions of that, which is more of just a kind of nihilistic power game. Uh, that says truth is what I want it to be. It's what I, it's whatever I. It's totally instrumental. I, it's what I tell my followers. But there's a different branch that comes off of this realization, and it says, "Correct. We can never be a hundred percent certain of anything, but we can have knowledge anyway. In fact, the only way we can get knowledge is being by being uncertain. So that's that's strange and counterintuitive. How could uncertainty lead to knowledge? And the key is by searching for error. We can know that things are not true. We can disprove things. If we say all cats are black, then when we see a white cat, we know it's not the case that all cats are black. So what we do is we try to disprove things and we set up this global network to do it. And that leads us toward objective truth. That's how we get all of these propositions that stand up to all these efforts to shoot them down across this network over time. And the ones that stand up, especially the ones that stand up for decades or centuries, like the discovery of DNA, the theory of evolution and so forth, those become our knowledge. So might they conceivably be false? Sure, Newtonian physics was found to be at least incomplete. Stuff gets revised all the time. That's the great strength of the system. But it doesn't mean everything's up for grabs all the time. We have this fantastic body of knowledge that evolves over time and that, that, that we rely on. We constantly check it. We constantly revise it. But that's the secret to the reality-based community. It's a body of knowledge. That's what we're trying to defend from the various attacks that are happening today. Mm. So two of those, those kinds of attacks, which, I've, which you actually linked in a very um, striking way in the book are um, trolling on the one hand, um, which that, that kind of epistemic nihilism I think your chapter in that is subtitled Flooding the Zone with Shit. And that's a quote, I think, from one of Trump's advisors or from Trump. Um, Stephen Bannon, yeah. Flood the Zone with Shit. Yes. Um, and cancel culture. And they are, they're, trolling is a, is a, in the book you say it's, a, it's it is like a, almost like a form of censorship because if you are you are just putting out such huge volumes of stuff that you're obscuring you're obscuring any any of the kind of real knowledge and the point of trolling is to create this uncertainty about what is real and what is false and um what is faked and what is genuine what is serious and what is a joke um not a kind of joke haha but often trolling is it would it's things that would be very offensive if they weren't a joke but they retain this kind of um weird plausible deniability that they could almost be a joke and they just don't have any epistemic um sort of solidity i guess that's my interpretation rather than yours so tell us your interpretation that's uh, that's my interpretation too so the book has three main messages and we've been discussing the first of them which which is it's not just a marketplace of ideas. It's a constitution of knowledge. There are rules that we have to obey and institutions and lots of norms that set up this complicated global social network. And um, 
those are the institutions and rules that are coming under attack. So now we turn to the second big message, which is in some ways, I think maybe the most interesting contribution of the book. But I summarize that message as you're being manipulated. So this global network we talked about, it depends on having these pumping and filtering stations, these nodes, which take good ideas, tested ideas and amplify them and take bad ideas, failed ideas and disamplify them. And by doing that, it creates an environment that's conducive to finding knowledge. Well, suppose you want to rig that system so that it works in the opposite direction, so that it projects bad ideas or false ideas, but in ways that advantage you. Well, then you're engaged in information warfare, propaganda, broadly defined. That's not a project to find truth. That's a project to organize and manipulate the social and media environment for political gain. And that's something that governments have been doing very well for over a century. Lenin, for example, was a pioneer at this. Goebbels was brilliant at it. Uh, Trump was brilliant at it, though, in, in very different ways. But he was a great innovator in the world of propaganda. So the insight of my book, which I think is will interest a lot of people and is non-intuitive, is that cancel culture, where people sort of gang up on someone for saying the wrong thing uh, and might cost them a job, seems very different from disinformation, the kinds of things the Russians do or the Trumps do when they just flood the zone with all kinds of lies so that people get confused and disoriented. But they really have the same goal, which is to manipulate the information environment to make people disoriented, to confuse them about what other people believe, to make them think that true things are false and false things are true. So they do that in very different ways, but they are trying to do the same thing. Mm. They're both, I think you you say, about signaling to the group rather than knowledge seeking you know and you're when people are trolling they're not they're not communicating with the with the people they're trolling they're signaling to other people who are in whatever group it is on the alt right or people on the social justice left also sometimes do trolling where what they say is not to be taken seriously it's more like a little kind of badge of belonging it's, oh, look, I make the same kinds of jokes and I say the same kind of shit the other people in my group say. I'm I'm a bona fide member. Here I am. And cancel culture, um, you say, has, a, has that same quality, which is very often it's not even, it's, it's not really a response to the person who is being canceled or their work, or even if it begins that way, it quickly spirals away from that. And you see people piling on to cancel somebody who have not read the work itself and don't know anything about the ideas. And it's not the ideas that are being discussed. It's more a kind of signal that you are part of the, the group that disapproves of this kind of thing or this kind of person. Yes. So you're, you're wise and perceptive to point out that parallel. Another way to think about it a different way of kind of saying the same thing is, as we talked about earlier, human beings are very dependent on what other people in our circles and society think to understand what we think is true and false. And we're, we're little antennae that look for, hunt for consensus. Well, you can spoof that antennae. You can spoof consensus in all kinds of ways so that people no longer know what the, uh, the best checked information is that's out there. One way to do that is by trolling, by just flooding the zone with disinformation so that people get very confused. And something else the trolls are very good at, which you rightly mentioned, is they're very good at causing outrage, which seizes attention. Now, in the reality-based community, attention is the key thing because the way we get rid of bad ideas is we don't punish the people who have them. They just lose the argument and they get ignored and no one pays attention to them. And, you know, if someone is out there with a tinfoil hat saying that, that uh, silent radio waves control our brains, they just get ignored. But it's very hard to ignore trolls because they're so good at manipulating our outrage, finding ways to attack us. They make us feel that we have to respond. And so they usurp attention. And of course, Trump was absolutely brilliant at that and very conscious about it. If he had a bad news day, he would change the subject by going on the attack against someone and everyone in media would say, oh my God, can you believe he's doing it again? That would become the topic of conversation. So he delighted in this. Another way to spoof consensus is by causing what are called spirals of silence. And that's where you use social intimidation. 
so that people will keep their mouths shut because they're afraid of losing their job or being demonized on social media by 10,000 people calling a, calling them a racist, or there'll be a petition campaign against them, or they'll be subject to an investigation uh, in their academic workplace. But basically, if you create these mobs that can descend on people and make them feel intimidated and isolated and silenced, if you can do that, you create an, an atmosphere where people are afraid to speak out, and then they no longer know what other people think. Everyone's silent because everyone else is silent. Everyone's fearful because everyone else is fearful. That's how totalitarian regimes work. They use you know prison cells and, and security services to do it. But it's also how you can spoof consensus on social media by using these gangs of people to, um, to cancel them and create an atmosphere of intimidation. But what all of these tactics are doing is distorting and polluting the information environment so we can't tell which end is up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, it's it's often very small groups who are doing this, yes. who are creating a disproportionate effect. Um, I That's want to the genius a, of it. Yeah. I want to read a, a short passage from your book about the spiral of silence, if that's okay. Psychology and sociology affirm what epistemology predicts. If a community falls prey to intellectual conformity, it descends down a kind of epistemic rabbit hole, a spiral of silence. That evocative term comes from a 1974 article by the German sociologist Elisabeth Noelle Neumann. Individuals, she posited, fear social isolation. They have a quasi-statistical organ which monitors their social environment and continually assesses the distribution and intensity of opinions around them. As we saw in Chapter 2, conformity bias is strong. We harmonise our beliefs and even our perceptions with those of the people around us, often without being aware of doing so. As we saw in Chapter 6, our opinion-sensing organs can be spoofed. Autocrats can use state media and censorship to make people believe that the leader enjoys broad support and that hardly anyone dissents. Online propagandists can use algorithmic amplification and fake personae to make a small group like anti-vaxxers seem like a big, respectable school of thought. In a manipulated or oppressive social environment, people who follow the cues around them will misread the distribution of opinion. The person who believes herself to be in the minority will assume that her views are losing ground. The more isolated she feels, the less inclined she will be to express her view and the more pressure she will feel to conform. You see how the spiral forms. The more, in, quote, the more individuals perceive these tendencies and adapt their views accordingly, the more the one faction appears to dominate and the other to be on the downgrade, wrote Noella Neumann. Thus, the tendency of the one to speak up and the other to be silent starts off a spiralling process which increasingly establishes one opinion as the prevailing one. The spiral of silence has some odd characteristics. In principle, a view which may initially not represent a consensus at all, which indeed is in the distinct minority, can make itself first seem dominant and then actually become dominant as holdouts fall silent, succumb to doubt, or convert to what they think is the prevalent view. Spoofed consensus can become real consensus, or at least close enough to be indistinguishable. Moreover, as we know from totalitarian states, once the spiral forms, even obvious facts can fail for a long time to interrupt it. As diversity dries up, the community spins ever further into its own looking-glass world. All the while, the members of the community can be engaging in what to them seems to be rigorous criticism and debate. I thought that was one of the most uh, important passages in the book, um, at least for me. I'm so glad um, you felt that way because we're all struggling so much to understand phenomena like QAnon which describes one of these spirals very well, or anti-vax, which is, you know, it's, it's the number of people who have extreme views against vaccination and who say a lot of things that are false about it is really quite small, not, not even close to a majority, but they've been so good at manipulating the inf- information environment that if you're a naive person, you just go online and start looking around for information, you're likely to be swamped 
with anti-vax stuff. And so you'll assume that's what the consensus is and that that's the safest thing to believe. So that's what we're up against today is, is a world where you've got a combination of social media tools that are really ideally designed for propaganda and disinformation because they were they were built for advertising, not for truth-seeking. They were built to profit by getting people to click on stuff, getting people's attention. Uh, trolls are very good at that. And you've got that those new tools combined with new incentives from people who want to manipulate the environment. And you've got attacks on intellectual diversity, which is really the key. All, what all of these things are doing is trying to uh, to manipulate the environment so that a few views can predominate, whether they're true or false, and that's what we're all struggling with now on places like you know Facebook and Twitter and college campuses, in, in areas where there's just not sufficient disagreement to to sustain real debate, uh, and in politics. Yeah. So what we want, I mean, you suggest in the book, um, it's clear that you're not arguing in favor of censorship. You don't want to. Um, take the the approach that certain views need to be silenced. Um, what we need is a kind of healthy ecosystem um, in which um, a very wide diversity of views can flourish. And the problem here is um, a small minority is hijacking the ecosystem and flooding it with their with their views. Um, and the what we lose is a kind of healthy, um, a healthy sense of the the range of views out there. Yes, with with one important supplement to the way you very nicely put it, which is you need not just a a diversity of views, but you need continued commitment among people in the reality based community. You know, people like us that all views are going to have to be subject to criticism. And that will often mean that people will say things that seem to someone obnoxious or wrongheaded. They'll make arguments that may seem bad, but also that we share a common commitment to follow that process where it leads. So you can believe whatever you want in the reality-based community. There's no restriction on that at all. But if you want to claim something as knowledge, you have to do some things. It has to withstand criticism. It has to withstand checking. And if it fails, you know, you can continue to believe it, but you can't use it to guide public policy. I mean, you can believe Elvis Presley is alive if you want, but you can't make the government send him a social security check. And it's that latter part that's particularly come under attack. Uh, the notion that we're all committed, or, or most of us at least, are committed to some rules that we have in common about what counts as knowledge and what doesn't. And these new forces are undermining those rules, and sometimes they do it. They they claim to be doing it in the name of diversity. Well, you know, shouldn't we have lots of views about vaccines? Well, fine, you can have lots of opinions about vaccines, but when one view has been repeatedly checked again and again, up, down, and sideways, and another has not, then we need to make a commitment, at least for public policy purposes, to favor the view that has been checked. So that's the other half that people forget. We have not only free speech rights, and that's crucial. But we also have certain obligations. And one of those is to commit ourselves to the constitution of knowledge. It's like committing ourselves to the rule of law in politics. You know, anyone can have different opinions about the tax code, but there's only one IRS and there's only one Congress. And we say, okay, well, those are the people who are going to make and enforce these laws. So part of the problem is clearly the political polarization um, that um, right and left in the US in particular, I think a much less so here, um, but certainly in America, many people on right and left are uh, in their own bubbles and in their kind of little epistemic bubbles. And because the left um, so strongly dominates the media and the universities, um, conservatives have been, have kind of, because they don't feel ownership of and they don't feel part of that that more open public, uh, more kind of um, more epistemically valid landscape because it's it's more subject to to those kinds of fact checking and bias checking mechanisms. But because conservatives have partly because they've been excluded from that, um, 
many more conservatives than liberals have succumbed to conspiracy theories. Um, and you talked about how conservatives were much more likely to have only one, only one or a few sources of news, in particular Fox News. And so I, for example, have never uh, seen Fox News. Um, but many conservatives have, are getting like 80% of their information from that source. But the problem is not, it's not that um, people who are right-leaning are just more prone to conspiratorial thinking. It's not some kind of um, moral foundations um, theory style idea that there, that is something inherent in conservatism. It's more that if we don't truly welcome opinion diversity in um, in universities and in the media, then we we encourage people to go and um, inhabit a kind of parallel epistemic universe, and that's very dangerous. I don't know if that if that makes sense to you. Yeah, there there are a couple dangers of having epistemic communities, whether they're in the media or in uh, universities or anywhere else. And one of them is is simply that we make mistakes. We don't see our mm -hmm. blind spots. Mm -hmm. We're all saying the same thing to each other, and we assume we're we're getting evidence that confirms what we believe, but we're just hearing ourselves talking to ourselves. So it's mm -hmm. very important you have. A mix of views. I don't agree with those who say that conservatives have been excluded from mainstream media. I don't think that's true at all. Uh, I do agree that there's a, a left-wing tilt and that that mm -hmm. problem is getting worse mm -hmm. in the US. But mainstream media, which I'm a product of, I'm a journalist by, by training. My first job was at a daily newspaper. Journalists by training are all about checking. That's mm -hmm. what we're taught mm -hmm. to do. David Broder's famous maxim, he was a famous reporter for the Washington Post, is if your mother says she loves you, check it. <laughs> and in mainstream media, when it's doing its job, which is a lot of the time, if you introduce a conspiracy theory into mainstream media, it'll tend to die out pretty quickly in a news cycle or two because people will check it and they'll say, well, this is wrong. And so they won't transmit it. So it just dies out on the network. Research finds that right-wing media in America functions on a different epistemic model. It's not just left-wing or right-wing politically, but the right-wing media tends to be much more interested in showing its audience what they want to hear. It's not about bias disconfirmation, which is how I was trained. How do I find my biases? By checking to see if they might be wrong. It's about bias confirmation. It's about, well, we'll get a lot more clicks and a lot more audience share if we go out and tell people more of what it is they want to hear. Maybe it's that Trump stole the election. Maybe it's that voting machines were rigged by some Venez dead Venezuelan dictator. There are all kinds of things it can be. But that flips all the pumps and filters. So now you have a news environment, which isn't a news environment. It's actually promulgating bad information at the expense of good information. And that becomes a source of political polarization as conservatives increasingly spin off into their own epistemic world. And we see that in the United States right now, where a large majority of Republicans believe falsely, just objectively falsely, that the election was stolen and that Donald Trump should be president right now. This is extremely dangerous for democracy, and it's a hard problem to deal with. Yeah. I didn't mean to, I guess I should have stressed the, the fact that they that many of them feel excluded um, and some of that may have to do with um, the kind of self-perpetuating cycle of more and more um, of media and universities becoming more and more left left wing, and the, the proportion of personnel becoming more more and more more and more of the proportion of personnel being le left wing, and it's also partly a kind of um, a narrative that is also fed to them by their own media, and. I mean, I understand because I'm um, um, because of my involvement in a small independent magazine myself. I understand how difficult it is if you don't have big institutional support and financing to get readership and and get funding and and um, get subscribers, unless you toe this line of the mainstream media are telling you a load of lies, listen to us as your alternative source. Um, being balanced is, is bad for your bottom line. 
Yeah, this is something we haven't touched on yet that's that's awfully important. We've talked about manipulating the information environment for political gain, but you can also do it for profit. And one of the big challenges for for journalism today, mainstream journalism, what I call reality-based journalism, is it's not as lucrative as the other kind because people are more eager to click on outrage and conspiracy theories and made up stuff. It's, you know, we're just humans. It's not that we're stupid, but this is shiny objects. They capture our attention, our imagination. They're controversial. Everyone's talking about them. So that's where the money goes. And it's increasingly difficult to finance what journalism needs to be doing, which is solid investigative work, checking on things before you print them, second sourcing, which can get expensive, all the things that that mainstream media is supposed to be doing. So when you add that, I think that's actually the bigger problem, the economic challenge. But when you add that to the need for more intellectual diversity, more diversity of viewpoint in newsrooms so that more assumptions get challenged, then you start getting a situation where um, reporting can become less reliable, but especially less trusted. And that's exactly the problem you're alluding to. Yeah. And it's a very um, human thing. I mean, returning to the beginning of your book, you talk about... um, you quote uh, Dan Cahan. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Um, Dan Cahan or Cahan. I think his it's, concept of. I'm not actually sorry? sure, but I think it's the former. His concept of identity protective cognition, i.e., any ki- any belief can come to define your identity, and once you start associating that belief with your identity, then what you want is to just have it affirmed. Um, because that makes you feel more secure in your identity. It comes to seem like part of you, rather than what the what a constitution of knowledge ideally does, which is depersonalize it. Yes. So that it's no longer your idea and your yes, that, belief. That puts it so well. The the great innovation of the constitution of knowledge is it divorces identity from knowledge. So you can have all the identity, or I can have, let's put it on me, I can have all the identity I want. For instance, I'm homosexual, I'm a gay man. And I don't have to renounce that identity or that viewpoint when I go out and and look for knowledge, or I wrote a book on gay marriage, why it's a good idea. And I had a lot of arguments and a lot of evidence. And and I I never said I don't have a point of view, I don't have an identity, I'm just some kind of objective computer. Not at all. But the system shouldn't have an identity. The system should have enough diversity so lots of people and lots of institutions with other identities are looking at what I'm saying and saying, well, does this pass muster from our point of view, not just his point of view? And if you get enough of that going, that's how you get progress toward knowledge. Jonathan, I know that um, we're coming up to the end of your time that you have to offer today. Is there an area that I haven't touched on that you think it's important that we we discuss. Yeah, there's the, the the third big third big theme of my book. We mentioned the first two. One is it's not just the marketplace of ideas; it's the constitution of knowledge. And the second is you're being manipulated, which is all the ways that that trolls and cancelers and nihilists and polit- political actors have found to manipulate information. And the third is third theme is they're not ten feet tall; we are. So when we talk about all these very effective disinformation tactics and how good they've been at usurping attention, spoofing consensus, causing confusion and disorientation, and doing the thing that they ultimately mostly seek to do, which is divide us, polarize society, make it ungovernable so there's more room for for demagogues and small manipulative minorities, factions. When we talk about all those things, they sound invincible, you know, and people when I talk about this in in public, again and again, people are just in despair. You know, how can we ever deal with the, the, the cesspool of social media, with the anonymity of trolls, with the complete takeover from their point of view of so much of academia by the radical left? You know, they're, they're just very demoralized about that. And I remind them, demoralization is what disinformation is all about. It's about making you feel weak and helpless making you feel alone and isolated, as if the whole world is against you. That's how you get spirals of silence. But it isn't. It's very important to remember the constitution of knowledge has incredible institutional depth. It's, de- it's been built over a period of centuries. It has 
newsrooms all over the planet, government statistical agencies, research labs and corporations. Uh, it's got academia. It's got fantastic institutional depth and an amazing record of success. And it has adapted successfully to information disruptions in the past, going back to the printing press, which was probably maybe the biggest of all, possibly even including today, caused 100 years of war. A lot of people were killed. We're at least not doing that right now. So how did it do that in the past? And can it do it again? Uh, I think the answer is it can. And the way is you start rebuilding these institutions and adapting them, these, all these rules we have. And there are a lot of ways to do that. And I'll just tick off one or two in the brief time remaining just to give people a flavor of it. But, but I'd encourage them to turn to the book to understand the, the full palette of resources that we have if we mobilize them. One is public education making people smarter about not trusting and retweeting everything they see online. That's starting and that's quite effective. Another is media sophistication, media savvy. Only four or five years ago, newspapers were printing all these conspiracy theories and everything politicians said. Now they have teams that actually cover disinformation. They're much more careful about finding out the provenance of information and revealing it to readers, contextualizing. They're much smarter about that. Social media platforms are thinking and working very hard on this problem, actually in some ways harder than anyone. Uh, it is true that their business models are very good at hosting disinformation, but they've also come to understand that if they become toxic waste dumps of false and dangerous information, they will be abandoned. Uh, they'll be relics in history. So they are beginning to think of all kinds of ways to redesign their systems, their their platforms so that they're more friendly to truth and less hostile to truth. Uh, that's everything from promoting material that's been fact-checked to putting up you know, Twitter. If you try to retweet something now without reading it, Twitter will send you a warning. Just all kinds of ways they're experimenting. Facebook has a new oversight board, which is a very creative institutional adaptation. So all kinds of stuff in, in social media is going on. And uh, academia, huge new studies disinformation, trolling centers around the world, places like the Stanford Internet Observatory, which are studying these in disinformation networks, going inside of them, understanding the conspiracies before they get out there, notifying the world about them. We're getting far more sophisticated about this stuff very quickly. It doesn't mean we win the battle because these are hard problems, but it does mean we shouldn't despair. There's a lot we can do to fix this situation. Some of it's happening already, but the key is to focus on it. The key is to understand the constitution of knowledge, why it's important, why we need it, and how to fight back for it. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.